Welcome to Follow the Science, a podcast about science, medicine, and medical misinformation. I'm your host, Faye Flam, and I'm going to be exploring all kinds of medical misinformation, from those wild conspiracy theories to the more officially sanctioned type of misinformation sometimes promoted by politicians, various public health officials, and sometimes scientists themselves. So the other day, I heard some people saying that they disapproved of the phrase, follow the science, which seemed a little worrisome. Um, They thought that it implied a kind of narrow way of thinking about the pandemic and what we should be doing about it. Well, I admit that yes, follow the science has become a sort of catchphrase, and that's what I liked about it. And I actually agree with them, but I'm trying to redefine it now to bring it back closer to the true spirit of science, which means open-minded inquiry, hearing from different viewpoints, and being able to question established doctrine. And so today we're going to hear from a couple of independent thinking scientists whose viewpoints don't completely match up with mainstream doctrine. The topic today is testing. Testing, combined with contact tracing, was supposed to be our savior, our way back to normal at the end of the pandemic spring surge. After wear a mask, Get a test has become a sort of second commandment of public health. First of all, we've been very aggressive about testing in this state, as you know. We're testing more than any state in the country. To my knowledge, none of us have ever been told to slow down on testing. We've conducted more tests than the entire European Union. In fact, we will be doing more testing. The federal government should mandate testing, period. Last week was our biggest testing week ever. It's extraordinary. We have the capacity to do three million tests a day. Good luck. Hope you don't test positive. It's not actually clear that all the money spent on testing, all that time people have spent waiting in lines, and those painful nose probes have really done that much good. My first guest today is Harvard University epidemiology professor Michael Mina. Tests are one of his specialties. He's trained in pathology as well as epidemiology, and he's in charge of testing at a major hospital. He got my attention recently at a press conference when he said something I haven't heard many scientists say, that if what we're doing to fight the pandemic isn't working, then instead of complaining or doubling down on the same old approach, maybe it's time to try something new. He says that in principle, testing can stem the tide of the pandemic, and we have the technology to make it work, But clearly, something about the approach that's being used now is not working. Right now, I mean, the state of things in the United States anyway at the moment is essentially we're getting almost no effectiveness from a public health standpoint out of our testing, which is frankly why uh, cases are are expanding so quickly. Nothing, our our contact tracing and our testing program is uh, failing before our eyes, but, but we just aren't yet willing to admit it, apparently. And I just wondered if you can take a quick minute and tell us your title there at Harvard. Uh, Sure. My title is I'm an assistant professor of epidemiology and immunology at the Harvard School of Public Health and an associate medical director and pathologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, where I help to oversee molecular virology diagnostics. I wondered if we could start with something you said uh, this morning that was really uh, provocative, which was that the way we're doing testing, the PCR tests that people are waiting for hours in line to get, serve no purpose or are useless. Essentially, if we have PCR testing results being provided back days later, then the the utility of those tests to 
identify people who are infectious and, and have them uh, be in a position where they uh, know their status in time to not infect other people means that if you have to wait for a few days to get your results, those test results are just not particularly useful anymore. The goal of all this testing should be to catch people when they're in that window of time where they're infectious or right before. But it turns out positive tests don't line up very well with infectiousness. And Mina says that people who were getting tested a few days before the holidays might have been deluding themselves because if they tested positive, there was actually a pretty good chance that they'd be past that infectious window by the time their holiday trips came up. And if they tested negative, there was still a chance that they would become infectious by Thanksgiving or Christmas. If somebody has a test on Monday, gets a swab, and has a negative result on Thursday, it really doesn't have any bearing anymore to suggest that that person remains negative on Thursday. It's, um, that's just how acute respiratory viruses like this uh, spread very quickly, and, and so results are very quickly outdated. There's no reason to stick a swab into somebody's nose uh, if what we're doing with that result is not useful anymore. In his view, laboratories might actually be doing more harm than good if they accept more swabs than they can process in a reasonable amount of time. If they accepted fewer, he says, they would at least be doing some good for some people. If I'm a lab, I, I would actually feel like I'm not just not helping, but really doing a disservice to somebody if I'm if I'm getting a result in it and a swab sits around for seven days before I have a chance to get to it. You know, the labs I think are feeling under immense pressure to get all of these swabs processed. And they are feeling like they aren't being given the resources to process all of the swabs being delivered to them. But a medical director of a laboratory is in a position to make the decision to say, we are overburdened, we can no longer take uh, this many tests, please stop delivering them to us. And that's really what laboratories should be doing. It would be much, much better to have half the number of tests being turned around in 24 hours than to have the full number of tests being turned around in seven days. At least one of them you're doing, you're getting 50% effective results and the other one you're getting zero. That is interesting. The other thing I wondered about is the public health messaging because I've had, uh, in fact, my governor, I'm in Rhode Island, is saying, go get a test. That's next to the top. Wear a mask is top, get a test. So I'm being very bad because I haven't gotten a test yet. So am I being bad or um, am I at least sort of freeing up resources for people uh, who are in the hospital who need these for diagnostics? Yeah, no, the, I think that the the messaging right now is really bad. I mean, I'm the biggest advocate for testing there is. But if we don't support uh, our society with the ability to do the tests, then we should not be telling people to just go out and get the tests. And I would say that if you are healthy, um, you know, given the constraints that we have, if you're healthy and you have no reason to believe that you have been infected, uh, then given the current constraints, probably it's best not to bother getting a test. Part of the science that's relevant here is understanding that window of time when people are most likely to transmit the disease, that is, when they're really contagious. And it turns out that people tend to test positive for days or even weeks after they've stopped being contagious. And that's because the standard tests that are used, so-called PCR, don't actually pick up 
the full virus capable of being transmitted to other people. Those tests pick up fragments of the virus's genetic material, and that tends to hang around in your body long after you've cleared the infection. He envisions a completely different approach that would bypass the labs and rely instead on people testing themselves at home with a device that works a little like a pregnancy test. That is, something that changes color within a few minutes. Tests of that type exist, they've been invented, so in principle, if we made it a national goal to distribute these by the hundreds of millions, we could all be testing ourselves every couple of days. We know just how fast it grows, and we know how just how fast uh, it, it then gets cleared from the body, which limits us to a very, very short window of time when people are most transmissible. Uh, and this is why the only, in my opinion, the only way to really effectively test for this virus in a way that's commensurate with just how widely it spreads is frequent and rapid testing. You need to get results back quickly. And frankly, you need them to be frequent and just of asymptomatic people, just it, it's called public health screening and you just screen people, you screen yourself. Ideally, you do it at home, you brush your teeth and you screen yourself. Isn't that something I, and I, you know, I love the idea of taking a, a simple test every couple of days, even why not? So, I mean, how hard would it be to get these tests made in bulk and get them out to people? It really should not be hard. We just have to put the resources behind it. We actually have companies. These are U.S.-based companies today. Uh, just one company alone that I'm thinking of is making 5 million of these tests daily and shipping them out overseas. People in public health and, and medicine tend to have very paternalistic viewpoints. And so they say, oh, we can't give people knowledge of their status because they'll all go out and party. You know, that's one of the, the things that I hear the most frequently from medical colleagues who, I don't know, I guess they, they think that they are being clever and thinking through all the, the holes that could happen in the public health efforts, like, as though we haven't thought about all these. But we saw this when pregnancy tests came around. They said, no, women are going to, they can't be trusted with their results of their pregnancy test. If they get a negative, but they're really, you know, in the window before they turn positive, they're going to go party and drink too much. Well, that leads me to something you said, which I thought was really important. And that was that people want these tests. We do. And we don't really want to have to wear a mask all the time. And we don't really want to have to social distance from the people, our friends all the time. So this seems like it has this huge advantage over the public health measures that are you know difficult for people and deprive them of our need to be social animals. Well, the best thing you can do is use the test right before you show up at your family's house. And you're gonna have to take off your mask to eat dinner and people have to keep seeing loved ones. You know, we can't just pause the social fabric of our country. And, um, and we know that people are doing it either way. We just saw the Thanksgiving mobile phone data that came out you know, there is barely a difference from last year in terms of the amount of travel. And so we know people are still doing all of these things. They're seeing family, they're seeing loved ones, they're seeing friends. And what these tests do is they just make it all safer. I also am wondering, I mean, people, you know, that have been, uh, I think people questioned you about masks today. And, and I wonder how many more masks we can really get people to wear. It seems like everyone's wearing one. And I was also pretty concerned because I live in Rhode Island and I haven't seen an unmasked person 
for months. We are the champion maskers. We wear them on the beach. We wear them hiking. We wear them walking our dogs. And we are about to surpass South Dakota as the worst state in the country. So what is going on? It's a very good question. I think that masks are effective, but not enough. Social distancing of six feet is maybe effective. I've never been a huge proponent of it. It just was a number that somebody came out with early on in the pandemic and stuck with, but you know, might help a little bit. I think that these tests, I don't think that there is a, a better option on the table than to know your status, to know that you're positive. Masks, we know that this is an airborne virus. We also know that many, many people wear masks that aren't particularly useful or that are effective, but you know, there's great gradients of effectiveness. Uh, if every single person in Rhode Island was always wearing an N95, would things be different? Maybe. It's hard to know. Uh, this virus does become airborne. We know that. We know it better now than we did six months ago. And, uh, and so I think that the masks will help. But certainly uh, the virus can get around them and through them and things like that. So it's not surprising to see that cases can really get out of control pretty quickly. This is a virus that does that. I guess I'm also wondering whether the problem is that people are so obsessed with what's going on in public and that a lot of these transmissions are happening in private, which is where the, the rapid testing could really help us. It's where people are gathering with their friends and family in homes. Uh, so absolutely. I think that. Uh, it is one of the major limitations of masks is that, you know, they're, they're just not comfortable. They're not things that people want to wear. A lot of people do wear them indoors for sure. But, uh, but you know, it's but a lot of people when they sit down at their desk, or whatever, they're going to take off their mask. And when they get together with family, they're going to take off their mask. They just do. And it's naive of us to think that they're not. And that's why giving people information about their status, A, is much less labor intensive. It's a 30 second thing, you know, two, three times a week or right before you go out. Um, and, it's, uh, and it's potentially much, much more effective. That lag time has proved fatal for the promise of so-called testing and contact tracing, which at one point was really held out as the big savior that was supposed to help us get back to normal. And instead, what we've seen is that it's failed even in places that had a really intensive contact tracing program. When you see a state like Massachusetts with some of the best contact tracing and some of the best testing still have cases that are completely out of control despite starting at a very low number, that should suggest that contact tracing as a way to stop the outbreaks does not work. It just didn't work in Massachusetts here. And, uh, and it's not working anywhere. Well, I think we have to address that last September, a very large elephant walked into the rapid testing room, and that elephant's name is Donald Trump. There at least was a sort of general understanding that people in the White House were getting the kind of regular testing that Dr. Mina is advocating. And yet, as we all know, there was a big party at the White House, the infamous Rose Garden event, which now looks like it became a real super spreader event. And so let's see what Dr. Minna has to say about that. Yeah, well, people use the Rose Garden event as an event that says, look, these rapid tests don't work. I look at it through really very, very different lens. I like to point out and say, look, it stopped it from happening all from March all the way through October because the White House was being completely 
negligent in terms of any other public health efforts. I also wondered whether we really know that everybody that went to that party had a rapid test. No, we, you're, you're absolutely right. We do not know that. And if you want my real honest opinion, I absolutely think it's Trump. I mean, I, I really do believe that Trump was the super spreader. He got very sick very shortly after it. You know, there's no reason to believe he wasn't already infected. And, and you're right. I've tried to talk to um, different people who were there. And I am not able to get straight answers as to whether everyone was actually tested. Uh, and also, I guess I wondered how how often Trump really was tested. Well, that's the, I think that it's pretty well decided now that it was not daily. Uh, those reports came out. And I'm I'm pretty sure that it is. You know, I'm guessing the people around him were being tested daily uh, because that's the kind of person he is. He he might not test himself daily. The White House hasn't been particularly transparent about what's been going on there and who was tested and when. And so it really isn't useful even as a case study. But there are plenty of useful studies, all kinds of studies, and my next guest has been particularly good at collecting those and learning from them. Her name is Muj Sevik. She's an infectious disease specialist in the UK. She works with COVID-19 patients, and she's also been doing a lot of research since last spring on how the disease spreads, where it spreads, who's likely to be infectious, and for how long. One thing she's found is about 80% of infected people eventually develop symptoms. And that means that the so-called asymptomatic cases make up about 20%. She's also found that the symptomatic people are more likely to transmit the disease to others, and that they do have an infectious window that starts a couple of days before they develop symptoms and lasts for a few days afterwards. But as we'll learn from her, testing and quarantine policies here and in the UK don't reflect that scientific knowledge particularly well. Is there anything we've learned from the biology of the disease that could give us a little more information than we had last spring about the optimal amount of time people should be told to self-isolate? Yeah, I mean, I think we have much more information now. Um, we actually, with my colleagues, we uh, combined almost 80 articles looking at uh, PCR testing and looking at uh, when people are infectious. What we found is that PCR tests could be positive up to 83 days in some cases. And uh, on, on medium, like on average, people can test positive for about 17, 20 days, but that doesn't mean they're infectious. When we look at studies that looked at the infectious virus, majority of studies suggest that, you know, um, we can't really culture the virus after day nine. So as I said, like when we compare um, the positivity of PCR and look at the culture positivity, it seems to be much shorter. And when we combine this information with uh, when the virus level goes to highest uh, stage, you know, when we call it peak viral load, that happens really early on around the symptom onset and for about five days. In an ideal world, Everyone who tested positive would go into isolation, and so would people who were potentially exposed or who had mild symptoms that looked like they might be COVID-19. But unfortunately, in the real world, this is rarely happening, or at least not in Western countries. For example, there are a lot of comparisons between Southeast Asian countries and Western countries. 
And uh, one thing everyone is talking about is mask, or they do a lot of testing. But one thing which has not been emphasized more is like they support their citizens much more than we do in the Western societies. I mean, they provide food, they provide, you know, um, salary, they provide support for the family. They even, you know, make, make the shopping and bring it to home. So, um, to, and some countries, as I said, like provide isolation hotels. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to worry about your salary. You don't need to worry about anything else. Yeah, so I think that's, a, that's such an important point as we get into this sort of longer stretch where we have to think about sustainability, that it's not just something we can, you know, work really hard at for a couple of weeks, but will take, a, you know, quite a long period of time. Absolutely, definitely. But I guess like uh, at the moment when we look at contact tracing studies, for example, in the UK, we know that only maybe 10 or 20 percent people self-isolate. So we need to kind of identify what are the gaps, how we could ensure and support people to self-isolate. You know, if I have to work and if I have children to look after, uh, you know, if my work doesn't provide paid leave, uh, and my family is dependent on my income, how I'm going to self-isolate. So those are the things we need to think about now. Like, um, you know, I think testing on its own is not an intervention and test, trace and isolate. This is like a huge intervention and we need to look at it uh, holistically. Interesting that so few people self-isolate. Now, when you say 10 to 20%, is that of people who've tested positive or of people who've been uh tapped on the shoulder by contact tracers and told uh, you've been in contact with someone who tested positive? Or is it some combination of both? I, it's, it's a combination of both. There was some study early in the pandemic uh, from the UK that basically suggested, you know, people with symptoms who haven't been tested, only 25% basically self-isolated until they got tested. So there, there are multiple things, of course, like uh, influencing this, but uh, especially those who test positive and contacted by contact tracers, uh, if they are not able to self-isolate, then, you know, we're not going to be able to prevent onward transmission. Interesting. Do you think that regular testing of people in those higher risk professions can help if they're given the resources to self-isolate? On, uh, you know, on learning they have a positive maybe twice a week or once a week or, I don't know, some regular periodic testing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think, as I suggested, you know, the testing needs to be aligned with our life realities. And, you know, at the moment, we're just testing everyone regardless, but we have much more understanding about who are much more at you know, high risk. So absolutely. I mean, I guess like regular testing in uh, high risk occupations and also I think uh, providing social income protection, uh, especially I think supporting zero hour contract workers, you know, because they have no protection at all. And also maybe providing, you know, uh, protective equipment. So I think one of the takeaway messages today is that the situation isn't hopeless, but if what we're doing isn't working, it might be a good time to try something else, and there are other approaches out there. I think another lesson is that public health can be science-based, but it's complicated. 
you have to factor in a lot of other things, including what people are willing to do and what they can afford to do and what people will do in the real world in public settings and in private. And I think finally, I really came away appreciating what my guests have to offer, which is a kind of a reality-based viewpoint, compassion, and maybe most importantly, vision. Thank you for listening to Follow the Science. Follow the Science is produced by Faye Flam with funding by the Society for Professional Journalists. Today's episode was edited by Seth Glicksman with music by Kyle Imperator. If you'd like to hear more Follow the Science, you can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast fix.